Well, we're not going to get very far in our study of the Gospel of Mark unless we establish a theological principle related to the miracles which are recorded for us in the Gospels. Before we actually begin on Mark chapter 2, I want to direct your attention to John chapter 20. Near the end of his gospel, John says something that's very relevant for our understanding of not only John's gospel, but all of the gospels. He wrote in John 20 verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. One chapter later, John says in John 21, 25, Now there are also many other things which Jesus did, but were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John explicitly tells the readers of his gospel on two occasions that he did not record everything that Jesus said or everything that Jesus did. He could not or he would have run out of both time and parchment. Therefore, it was necessary that he select out of the whole body of Jesus' teaching and out of the whole body of Jesus' works, those teachings and those works which suited his purpose in writing, which he says to us in John 20, was to bring his readers to saving faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And so, when we read the Gospel of John, and we come across a miracle, we know that it's a miracle with a message. It was intended to give us grounds to believe on Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And so we study, as we read John's gospel, we study each miracle asking, why did John include this one? What does this miracle have to teach us about the person of Christ and the salvation that comes only through him? But what is true of John and his gospel is true of every other gospel. All the gospel writers made choices based on the purpose of their book. They all made decisions out of or about which teachings and which miracles and which events they were going to include in their gospels and which they were going to leave out. Therefore, those which they did include have particular meaning in them. The evangelists, the authors of the Gospels, they believed that these miracles suited their evangelistic purpose, that these events were particularly filled with theological significance. They didn't include miracles merely to show off Jesus' power. The miracles are included in order to teach something. They are miracles with a message. Theologians will refer to this as the parabolic nature of the gospel miracles. In other words, the miracles of Christ recorded in the gospels function as acted parables. They teach truth by way of action. And this is particularly important for us to remember in Mark's gospel because Mark records less of Jesus' teaching, less of Jesus' words than any other gospel. The Gospel of Mark is mostly action. It's mostly narrative. But that doesn't mean it doesn't teach. 
The teaching is in the narrative. The message is in the miracle. Now, this makes the task of interpretation rather difficult because if the message is wrapped up or implicit in the miracle and not explicitly stated, then we need to take care that we draw out of the miracle the right message, the message that Mark intended. Church history is filled with fanciful, allegorical interpretations of the gospel miracles that range from the strange on the one hand to the outright dangerous on the other. So when studying or preaching through the gospels, we need to take extra care, especially when we're expositing a miracle of Jesus, that we rightly divide the word of truth. So as we work our way through Mark's gospel and as we work our way through this miracle this morning, I'm going to take extra care to show you where I'm getting the message. And your job is to be Bereans and double-check me against the text to see if you think that was indeed Mark's purpose in writing and recording this particular miracle or this particular event or narrative. In this way, we may work through the gospel together and hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And this morning, we come to a very famous miracle. It's recorded by three out of the four gospel writers. You can find it in Matthew and Mark and in Luke. It's the healing of the paralytic whose friends lowered him through the roof of the house in order to get him into the presence of Jesus. Verse 1, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. Now, it's unclear how much time has elapsed since the end of chapter 1. Mark one thirty-nine. if you just look back one chapter, Mark one thirty-nine reported that Jesus left Capernaum to embark upon a preaching tour throughout all of the region of Galilee. He was preaching in their synagogues. He was casting out demons. In one of those Galilean towns, a leper came and threw himself down at Jesus' feet, and he was pleading for cleansing. And Jesus reached out his hand, and he touched the man, and he healed him in an instant. And even though Jesus strictly warned him to tell no one, the man ran out and told everyone what had happened to him, with the result, the text says, that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but had to stay out in the desolate places where people would come to him from every quarter of Galilee and beyond. Mark does not provide us with a time frame, then, for the events of chapter 2. You remember, the gospel writers are less concerned with chronology than they are with theology. So the question is, Do the events of Mark 2 take place during Jesus' Galilean ministry that's described in verse 39, or during, or after, rather, his time that he had to spend out in the wilderness that's recorded in verse 45? Well, the fact of the matter is we don't know, and it doesn't much matter, I guess, because we know now in chapter 2 and verse 1, Jesus is back in Capernaum where he had spent significant time previously, uh, much of that time is recorded for us in chapter 1. Capernaum is where it all began. It was where his public ministry was inaugurated. And furthermore, he's back in a house in Capernaum, presumably Peter's, as he was before. And on this particular occasion, Jesus is preaching the word of God inside the home, 
And so many have gathered to hear him that the crowd is flowing out the door. Luke records in Luke 5.17 when he describes this miracle, Luke records that Pharisees and teachers of the law, those whom Mark calls scribes, they had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and even from Jerusalem in order to hear this young rabbi who's by now drawn all of the attention of Israel. Verse 3. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. All right, so now the focus of the narrative shifts to four men who are carrying a paralytic on a pallet, kind of like a a stretcher. Your translation may say bed. Mark gives no details about this man doesn't tell us what caused his paralysis, how long he'd been in this condition, what his frame of mind is. In fact, the man doesn't even speak throughout this entire narrative. But we know this. He had four friends who dearly loved him and were determined to get him to Jesus, whom they heard and believed had the power to heal. But there was a problem. They arrive at the compound, remember, Peter's home would have been several outbuildings surrounded by a wall. They arrive at the compound and they find that there's no room for them. They can't get into the main house in order to bring their friend into the presence of Christ. But they're determined, and so they carry this man, which would have been some feet, they carried this man up to the roof of the house. Now, a typical Galilean home consisted of stone walls and a flat roof composed of large timbers laid out parallel every two or three feet apart. Then crosswise over those large timbers were smaller sticks that were laid close together. Over that second layer was a layer of thatch consisting of reeds, branches, grass, and thistles. And then over the top of it all was a layer about a foot thick of dried and hardened mud that was packed down in order to make the roof watertight. So when Mark says that they dug through the roof, he meant it. They dug through earth, tore away the branches of the roof, mud and debris would have been falling down upon those who were gathered underneath. As I read this, I couldn't help but wonder what Peter's reaction was to these men who were making a man-sized hole in his roof. Uh, I imagine him coming up to Jesus after the crowd had cleared out and said, you know, Lord, um, you, you healed this man's legs. Now I've got a problem with my roof. But Jesus, probably unlike Peter, isn't the least bit phased by these events. It's as if he doesn't even see the hole in the roof. What strikes his attention is their faith. Verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. I think verse 5 is the core of this passage, and I think it holds the key to the message in this miracle. And we're going to turn to, we're going to return to dwell on it momentarily. In any case, the words that Jesus spoke did not sit well with the religious leaders in the room. Verse 6, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you have to say they're right. Forgiveness 
is a divine prerogative. It belongs to God alone. The Old Testament makes that abundantly clear. Even the prophets could at best declare God's forgiveness. For instance, think of the instance when Nathan the prophet came before David after the adultery with Bathsheba. The best he could do was to say, the Lord has taken away your sins. He didn't walk in and say, I forgive you. But that's what Jesus does. Jesus does not merely declare God's forgiveness of this man's sins. He remits the man's sins himself. That's why the religious leaders got upset. There was no mediator. There was no intermediary. There was no priest. This was direct divine forgiveness. And that is blasphemy unless Jesus is God. Verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? All right, so Jesus perceived their inner grumblings and accusations of blasphemy, and he responds brilliantly. He admits that it's an easy thing to say, Your sins are are forgiven. Such a statement is unverifiable and therefore it's not falsifiable. You can't see whether or not someone's sins are forgiven. The reality of forgiveness is invisible. No one could have verified his statement. But a declaration of healing is verifiable and is falsifiable. Either the man can now walk or he can't. Thus, If Jesus could heal the paralytic by the power of his word, what must that say about his authority to forgive sins? But that you may know, verse 10, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. The word of Christ is not an empty word. When he commands healing, deformed bones straighten, atrophied muscles strengthen, deadened nerves come to life. And when Jesus pronounces forgiveness, sins are actually remitted. That's the miracle. Now, what is the message behind the miracle? As I said earlier, I think the meaning of this miracle, the key to understanding it, is found in verse 5. In verse 5, the entire narrative takes a turn. When the four men go through the tremendous effort to lower their friend into the house and into the presence of Jesus, here's what you expect to read in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your legs are healed. But that's not what he says. The paralytic comes to him for healing, and Jesus forgives his sins. See, up to this point, up to verse 5, what has transpired in this story was not at all uncommon, not in Capernaum in recent weeks. Jesus had healed dozens, maybe even hundreds in Capernaum already. 
But Jesus' words turn this relatively ordinary story about healing into an extraordinary story about the forgiveness of sins and Christ's authority to do so. So what does Mark intend for us to learn about forgiveness from this account of the healing of the paralytic? I think we find three truths in particular. First, this story teaches us that the forgiveness of sins is our greatest and most urgent need. Mark says nothing about the motives of the paralytic or of his four friends in coming to Jesus. Obviously, they sought healing for their friend. And obviously, they believed or hoped that Jesus had the power to heal. But I suspect that they came for something more, even if they didn't quite know why, and even if healing was foremost in their mind. You you need to remember, this is not the first time that Jesus was in Capernaum. The people of the city have heard him preach as well as seen him heal. They've heard him preach the gospel of God and the coming of the kingdom and repentance and faith in order to enter into that kingdom. Mark 1, 14 and 15 tells us that's the content of his message. And Mark 1, 38 tells us that's why he came. In other words, that was the focal point of his ministry. The people of Capernaum had heard him proclaim the gospel of God, which declares the forgiveness of sins through repentance and faith. Jesus' stated priority in ministry was not the healing of paralysis, but the healing of souls, the healing of that rift between God and man that is caused by sin. And I think these five people knew it, And yet they came, which tells me something about their expectation when they arrived. I don't think they were ignorant of Jesus' message. They had to know this about him. Secondly, second reason I suspect they came to Jesus for more than the healing of their friend's body. In verse 5, Jesus declares the man's sins forgiven. And everything about his message and everything about his ministry, everything about the gospel that he declares says that the forgiveness of sins comes in one way and in one way only, through repentance and faith. It would be a contradiction of dozens of biblical texts and of Jesus' entire ministry if Jesus forgave this man's sins apart from repentance, and faith. Therefore, if Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven, we know as a matter of fact that he was repentant and believing. I'm not saying that these five men had a great deal of understanding or insight into who Jesus was or what he had come to do, but I am saying that they recognized him as the Messiah, as one who could bring them to God and make them whole in both body and soul. MacArthur writes this, quote, the forgiveness that the Lord granted indicates a genuine repentant faith. This man, along with his friends, must have believed that Jesus was the one who offered salvation to those who repent. The Lord, recognizing true faith, said to him, son, your sins are forgiven, end quote. But while I think they knew that they were coming for forgiveness As well, there's no doubt that they came for healing. And so it's startling 
It would have been startling to the crowd, it would have been startling to them, and it's certainly startling to us as we read that when they come, instead of healing him, or maybe before healing him, he forgave the man his sins. It certainly startled the scribes, who presumably would have had no qualms with Jesus healing this man, provided it wasn't on a Sabbath. But Jesus' words are not only startling, I think they're instructive. I think Jesus here establishes the priority of forgiveness over healing. The healing of your soul is more important than the healing of your body. Although you would never guess that from most churches' prayer request sheets. This is clear from the Gospels. Because many were healed who were not forgiven. Think of Luke 17 and the ten lepers. And though their body was healed in the moment, they died in their sins. But no one is forgiven of their sins who is not also made everlastingly whole in their soul now and in their body at the resurrection. Physical healing is by its very definition temporary. But the forgiveness of sins brings the healing of the soul, the resurrection of the body at the coming of Christ, and life everlasting. In other words, if you come to Jesus for the healing of your body or the healing of your circumstances, and that's where you stop, you're short-sighted as far as the gospel is concerned. Every one of you who comes in here today comes in some manner of need. For some, your need is relatively minor. For others, it's as crippling as this man's paralysis. For some, it's a physical ailment. For others, it's emotional suffering caused by a broken relationship that you desperately want restored. But no matter what it is, If you come to Jesus, if you come into his presence, the first matter he's going to address is the issue of your sin. In the midst of your pain and your suffering and your sorrowful circumstances, you need to realize this truth. What you need most, and if you could see clearly like Jesus does, what you want most is for Jesus to heal your soul and make it well. Jesus could, if he pleased, take away in an instant whatever physical or emotional burden you bear. The question is not of his ability. But if he does not heal your soul, you will die in your sins. But if he heals your soul, if he forgives your sins, if he makes your heart clean, you will have bubbling up within you a fountain of living water that will enable you to endure any hardship, any suffering, and any tribulation with a hope that can never die. So I think the first question that needs to be asked of you from this text is, have you come to Jesus and heard from his lips Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. If not, nothing else matters. 
The second truth this account makes clear is that the forgiveness of sins is available only through the Son of Man. The second truth follows closely upon the first. Not only does Jesus make forgiveness of sins the priority over every temporal need, remember his messages, but seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and then all of these things will be added unto you. He makes the forgiveness of sins the priority, but Jesus' healing of the man's paralysis was merely a means to an end, as we see in verse 8. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, and said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I'm healing this man so that you may know that I have authority to forgive sins. See, the scribes had questioned Jesus' authority, and so Jesus heals the man's paralysis in order that they may know that he, the Son of Man, has the authority to pronounce forgiveness of sins upon the earth, indeed, to actually forgive sins. In other words, Jesus does not perform the miracle in order that people will be impressed by his power. There's a sense in which you could read this and say he doesn't heal the man for the man's sake. He performs the miracle in order that people may know that he possesses the authority to forgive sins and that they may come to him for that forgiveness. For the first time in Mark's gospel, Jesus refers to himself by his favorite messianic title. He refers to himself as Son of Man. Now, this title comes from a pivotal Old Testament passage in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, in which the entire scope of human history is portrayed as a series of beasts that rise out of the sea in order to conquer and to dominate the earth, including the saints of the Most High, who are trampled by one beast after another. Eventually, however, the Ancient of Days takes his seat upon his throne, attended by an innumerable multitude of the angelic hosts, and he hands down judgment upon the beasts. In the midst of that vision that encompasses all of redemptive history, Daniel 7, Daniel sees another figure arise. In Daniel 7.13, he writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this mysterious Son of Man figure in Daniel 7 ascends on the clouds of heaven. He presents himself before the Ancient of Days. And from the Ancient of Days, he receives glory and authority over all the earth and an everlasting kingdom that will never be conquered or destroyed. In other words, this Son of Man is the promised Messiah and King. And as king of the everlasting kingdom, he alone possesses the sovereign authority to forgive sins, to pardon sinners, and to welcome any he chooses into his everlasting kingdom. 
So when Jesus says to the scribes that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, that is a loaded title. Is this not precisely what Jesus preached throughout Galilee, by the way? Repentance and faith and entrance into the imminent and invisible and everlasting kingdom of God. But now, suddenly, there in Peter's home, in the presence of the scribes and of the crowds, instead of merely pointing the way to the entrance into the kingdom through repentance and faith, Jesus now announces himself to be the door of the kingdom. Instead of, if you repent, God will forgive you your sins and admit you into his kingdom, now his message is, I am the king with authority to forgive sins and to grant entrance into my kingdom. You must repent and come to me. Jesus was not, I mean, read the Gospels. He's not usually so open and unveiled in his earthly ministry about his messianic identity. But in this instance, he was. I have authority on earth to forgive sins, and in order to prove it, I will say a word, and this paralytic will rise up and walk. So Mark adds a new element to his purpose in including this event. Not only, number one, does this account teach us that the forgiveness of sins is our greatest and most urgent need, number two, it teaches us that the forgiveness of sins is available only through the Son of Man, who is Jesus Christ. There is no other door into the kingdom because there is no other king. And so if you would enter into the kingdom of God, you must be forgiven of your sins. And if you would be forgiven of your sins, you must go to the king. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. This is the message of the gospel, and it's the same gospel that's been proclaimed for 2,000 years, and it's the gospel I bring to you today. Peter said it like this before the before the household of Cornelius. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. So after point one, I asked you, have you ever heard from Jesus? Son, your sins are forgiven. If not, you haven't taken care of your greatest and most urgent need. Now after point two, I ask you, Have you sought that forgiveness from the one who alone has the authority to grant it? I can't forgive your sins. That's why at the end of services, I don't call you to come to me. I command you to go to Christ. There is forgiveness and salvation in no one else. Point number three. The forgiveness of sins must be pursued with perseverance. It took great effort, didn't it? For the man and for his friends to get him into the presence of Jesus. He had to be carried to Peter's house. When they arrived, they found it was so crowded they couldn't push their way through. So they climbed up to the roof and carried the paralytic with them dug through the roof, lowered the man into the center of the crowd, right to the feet of Jesus. The whole ordeal was extremely difficult and more than likely humiliating. It was filled with obstacles that would have made lesser men turn back. It was risky. It was embarrassing. 
but they persevered because they knew that healing, both physical and spiritual, are to be found only in the presence of Jesus. And so they did whatever it took. And so must you. Now, this is one of those points that needs to be handled with care. For one could misunderstand me to mean that the man and his four friends earned Jesus' forgiveness and healing through their great effort, humility, and perseverance. This would then make forgiveness a work to be attained rather than a gift to be received, and it would become a grounds for boasting. I did what was necessary to get forgiven. Why haven't you? Forgiveness then would not be of grace, but would be according to effort and to merit. That is not what I'm saying. So I want you to understand me very, very clearly because I am jealous to keep the gospel free and gracious. So I have three responses to someone who might say, telling people that they have to pursue, pers- or pursue forgiveness with perseverance makes the gift somehow less free and makes it somehow less gracious and turns it into a work. I have three responses to that. First, I simply point you to Mark's words in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their, fill in the blank, faith, not their effort, not their work, not their determination, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Faith was the foundation of everything they did that morning from the time they got up and decided to cart their friend to the house of Peter to the time when they lowered him inch by inch from the roof. Everything was an act of an underlying faith. It was because they believed that they picked up their friend and journeyed to Peter's house. It was because they believed that they did not turn back when they saw the crowd was too large to enter in. And it was because they believed that they carried their friend up to the roof. And it was because they believed that they dug through the roof and lowered him to the room where Jesus was. It was their faith that received the forgiveness of sins. And let me ask you a question. Where does such faith come from? It is a free gift of God's grace by the Holy Spirit. Faith is the result of the new birth, which is granted by the sole working of God's sovereign grace and power. They persevered with great effort to get to Jesus because they believed. They believed because they had been born again, and they were born again because God gave them a free and unmerited gift of his favor. So there is no grounds for boasting in their perseverance because it all arises from faith. Therefore, grace is still gracious and free. Here's response number two. I say that forgiveness must be pursued with perseverance because Jesus says so. I'm going to give you three passages from the Gospels that lead us to this conclusion. Uh, They'll be up on the screen, don't have to turn there with me, but the first comes in Luke chapter 13. Luke 13, 24, Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. That Greek word translated strive is the word agonitsiste, from which we get our word agonize. 
agonize, Jesus says. He's speaking to you, right? Agonize to enter through the door. Strive to get in with agonizing effort. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Each of those words are a present tense imperative, which means ongoing durative action, continuous, rather than what Jesus could have used, which is an aorist imperative, which is point in time, which is known as punctiliar action. So a good way to translate that, or rather to understand it's translated fine, a good way to understand that is to say, ask and keep asking until you receive. Seek and keep seeking until you find. Knock and keep knocking until the door is open. Because sometimes you have to ask for a long time and seek for a long time and knock for a long time. Matthew eleven twelve. one more verse. Jesus makes a very strange statement. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. What in the world does that mean? Well, it's a difficult verse to translate, much less interpret. Theologians are divided as to what Jesus meant. But I'll tell you what I think it means, and I'm swayed by the parallel statement which is found in Luke 16. I think Jesus is speaking of how people enter the kingdom. Because in Luke 16, 16, he says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached. And everyone forces his way into it. Evidently, Jesus taught that it took decisive, forceful, even violent action, grounded in real faith, to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And such forceful, decisive, persevering action are exactly what's exemplified by these four men and their paralytic friends. We have done people a disservice in modern evangelism by making salvation and forgiveness mechanistic. Call out to him once for a couple of minutes at the end of a service, and you'll be forgiven and you'll receive the gift of everlasting life. It's easy. Anyone can do it. When Jesus says, strive to enter the kingdom of heaven, knock and keep on knocking. If the kingdom of heaven is to be entered into, it's got to be entered into by violent men and women who take it by force. You know what that means? I'm going to knock and I'm not going to go away just like the persistent widow until he opens the door and lets me in. Why? Because I believe that I've got no other hope because there is no other door. Finally, this is the testimony of many throughout the history of the church and today that the forgiveness of sins is not easily attained, but rather the assurance of pardon comes at the end of often a long and heart-rending and forceful struggle. Think of Luther 
who struggled for years and struggled mightily with the text of Romans 1.17 before finally the clouds parted and he understood what it meant for the righteous to live by faith. This was the testimony of John Bunyan who spent three years or more riding this anxious roller coaster between hope that he was saved and despair that he was lost before he finally came to a settled evangelical assurance. This struggle of Bunyan's, by the way, was represented in his semi-autobiographical allegory known as the Pilgrim's Progress. You remember the story? You ever wondered why it takes Christians so long to get to the cross where his burden finally falls off of his back? That's because that was Bunyan's experience and the experience of so many people that Bunyan counseled in the church that he loved. Christian leaves the city of destruction And before he arrives at the foot of the cross and the burden falls off of his back, he needs to first pass through what Bunyan calls the slew of despond. He gets sidetracked as he tries to have his burden removed by a man known as legality who dwells in the land of morality. He is found, when that doesn't work, he is found and he's chastised by evangelists who once again points him towards the wicked gate. Finally, when, or when Christian arrives at the wicked gate, he knocks on the door. Over the, over the heading of the door, it says, knock, and it will be open to you. But while he's knocking, phew, 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 these arrows are piercing the door to either side of him. And, and the doorkeeper, the, known as the porter, he opens the door, and he, and he drags Bunyan in and slams the door behind him. And he, and he tells him, Those are the arrows, the fiery darts coming from Beelzebul's castle. They're trying to keep you from getting in. Even then, he doesn't come to the foot of the cross. He must spend time at the house of interpreter before he finally arrives at the place where his burden falls off of his back, tumbles down the hill, rolls into a tomb, and is never seen again. What's Bunyan trying to say? Very often... Very often, the forgiveness of sins or the knowledge of that forgiveness and the assurance that you have been forgiven comes at the end of a large struggle where you just keep going towards the cross. Don't make it cheap. It's not. It is free, but it's not cheap. It does no violence to the offer of free forgiveness through faith in Jesus to say that this forgiveness must be diligently, decisively, forcefully, even violently sought with perseverance. So what does that mean and how can you do it? It begins, number one, with recognizing that the forgiveness of sins is your greatest and most urgent need. You need to be convinced first that your condition is desperate and that you are a spiritually paralyzed man who can't take the first step towards your healing. That's why I prayed for conviction to come. You won't seek forgiveness decisively, forcefully, and violently until you sense the need of it. Number two, it continues with recognizing that the forgiveness of sins is available only from the Son of Man who alone has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so when you become aware of your sin, I, like the evangelist in Bunyan's allegory, my job is to say, there's the wicked gate. There's the narrow path that leads to life. Go. Walk it and enter in. 
I can't grant you forgiveness any more more than evangelists could take the burden off of Christians' back. You have to go to Christ. Third, when you have called upon the name of Jesus, guess what you do? You keep calling. You keep striving, you keep pursuing until you hear him say, by grace, through the Spirit, son, your sins are forgiven. You keep pressing into Christ until you receive from him the assurance of pardon. You take the kingdom of heaven by force. That's what Jesus tells you to do. You press in with violence. You let nothing stop you from getting to the feet of Christ. You make diligent use of the means of grace. What does that mean? You come here every week whether you feel like it or not, and you let me speak the words of the gospel to you until they hit home. Come to church. Listen to the word of God preached. Pray without ceasing. And, and... Humble yourself and enlist trusted friends who will intercede for you and carry you to the foot of Christ. And don't quit. Do not stop until you know your sins are forgiven. And then, finally, when you've heard those sweet, confidence-inducing words of Christ come to your heart, and they don't come once, they come over and over. By the power of the Spirit, then you rise, you take up your bed, and you walk forth with joy because you ought to be the happiest and holiest person on the face of this earth. 